Hi, and welcome to another podcast at Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet, and I'm your host with the most information that you can find on the book of Revelation. You'll notice that my voice is a little bit deeper than uh, what you may be used to. If you've been listening to my podcast, I got uh, hit with a little bit of a cold, uh, so it's either that or uh, puberty hit me hard as it did Miss Prudy in uh, Support Your Local Sheriff. (laughs) But at any rate, this podcast is the official start of our Come Follow Me podcast series. Today, I'll be covering chapters 1 through 5 in the book of Revelation. These are the chapters scheduled in your Come Follow Me curriculum for the week of December 4 through 10. So I'm covering them now in advance of your week-long study to give you the benefit of my thoughts and insights that uh, I've developed over the last 14 years in my study of the book of Revelation. Now I have to warn you that covering five chapters in a single podcast is nigh unto impossible unless we fly through the material and over the material at a very high altitude to get an overview of these first five chapters. So today, for the uh, most part, we'll be flying at about 30,000 feet so that you can get an overview of the materials that you'll be studying this week. I'll try and give you some information that I think will be helpful as you do your own personal studies. This uh, large volume of information is the reason why I actually began podcasting Revelation Topics since the 1st of October. So this is actually my 10th podcast um, covering the materials in the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Book of Revelation. But the first nine pretty much covered a lot of foundational materials that uh, if you haven't had the chance to look at them already... I'd suggest that you do so. These are kind of the foundational podcasts that it's kind of like the uh, summer school placement program when uh, your kids were going through high school through advanced placement classes and they had to do some summer homework. So those first nine uh, podcasts are basically uh, your summer school assignments uh, as you begin your uh, AP course of study in the book of Revelation. And uh, that, that's kind of the way um, I did when I was an early morning seminary teacher off and on for about 10 years. I would give the kids quizzes every Monday and uh, we had midterm exam. And this is early morning seminary. So these kids are coming in at a quarter after six to start this class. And I'm giving them quizzes and exams and everything like that. And uh, one day, uh, well, probably more than one student uh, complained a little bit, but uh, this one I remember in particular says, how come we got to take all these quizzes? Nobody else has to take quizzes. And uh, and I told him, I said, well, you know, this is this is advanced placement seminary. So we, we kind of have to go the extra mile. And she, you know, when you apply to go to uh, BYU after you graduate, you can put on your... Uh, admissions form that uh, you had AP seminary with John Cassinet <laughs> and you probably get some uh, college credit <laughs> he said really I said no oh. <laughs> so at any rate that's what we're dealing with here at the, if you're listening to this podcast uh, this is AP book of revelation study 
So uh, if you haven't watched the first nine podcasts, um, you know, I think it would be helpful to you. I'll point some out today as we skip some materials and uh, I'll tell you where you can find the information on some of the prior podcasts. But having said all that, the reality of it is that uh, even with the foundational podcasts that we have already had, uh, we're still going to be flying at about 30,000 feet um, for the most part during this podcast. And uh, the only thing I can tell you by way of consolation, if it is a consolation, is that uh, after we get done with the uh, overview of the book of Revelation and this the month of December 2023, come 2024, my intent is to do a verse-by-verse study of the entire book of Revelation. Now, I know your interests are going to be kind of directed uh, more toward your study of the Book of Mormon, but I hope you'll give me a little bit of time and we'll continue our studies of the uh, book of Revelation. So, having uh, given you that intro, let's now uh, go ahead and begin our uh, study session with a discussion of Revelation 1.1. And uh seems like a good place to beginning. That's how they did it in the uh, Wizard of Oz. You, you begin at the beginning. And so uh, we're going to try the same recipe and see how it works out for us. So Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Okay, now that we've had a chance to kind of read the verse, let's start breaking it down a little bit, beginning with the first five words, which say the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that really sets the tone and is the theme for the entirety of the book of Revelation. I consider this book to be the most Christ-centered and Christ-filled book of Scripture by volume than any other book. scripture we have in the four standard works and I emphasize by volume because John's book of Revelation has 22 chapters whereas someone like Isaiah has 66 chapters so he has lots of messianic prophecies there's no doubt about it but they're kind of spread out over uh, a lot more chapters the the same with the doctrine covenants that has a lot of information about the Savior, but it's spread out over 138 sections. So if you want to get a real compact story and information about the Savior, the place to go is the book of Revelation. And I know you may not believe that right now because you're still struggling with all of the uh, the symbolism and everything, but uh, I think you'll in time come to find that that's true. The word revelation itself comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, or apocalypse, which means to uncover or unveil something hidden. So when we take those first five words in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, essentially what we're talking about is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And that's why my website name is Unveiling Jesus Christ. I have a, a YouTube channel that is called Unveiling Jesus Christ. All of these things relate back to this particular verse in the book of Revelation, which is the theme for the entire book, because Jesus Christ is the hidden object that is revealed or unveiled in the book of Revelation. And this is amplified by the Joseph Smith translation of this same verse. So if we go to that, the Joseph Smith translation in Revelation 1.1, it says, The revelation of John 
a servant of God, which was given unto him of Jesus Christ to show his servants, etc. So you take the, in uh, the King James Version, you've got the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And in the uh, Joseph Smith translation, we now have the additions of the words that this is the revelation of John or that which John has received, who is a servant of God, which was given unto him of Jesus Christ. So again, the emphasis is on the revelation and unveiling of Jesus Christ. So uh, as we look at this some more, we have to also understand that it's not only a revelation of Jesus Christ, it is also a revelation from Jesus Christ. So Christ is the ultimate author of the book of Revelation, and John his servant just happens to be the scrivener. He's the guy that's uh, writing it down on the uh, scroll that is then delivered and transported to the seven churches in Asia. The revelation is for the benefit of God's servants. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, who are the servants? Well, that's you and I, hopefully you and I. The servants are those who are faithful members of Christ's church, both modern and ancient. They're the same as the 144,000 servants that we will encounter when we get to Revelation chapter 7. So the revelation essentially shows God's servants by certain signs and symbols that serve as a roadmap for them to gain exaltation. And that's what these 144,000 servants are. They are those who qualify for exaltation. And so I know you have some concerns here that all of these signs and symbols in the book of Revelation are essentially a roadmap for you to gain exaltation. And you're sitting there scratching your head saying, well, you know what? <laughs> I don't really understand them. I'm not a cartographer, and so I don't really understand what all of these uh, signs and symbols are in this so-called roadmap that is leading us to exaltation. And I get that. And I, uh, I, I have to share a, an experience that I had when we were in France as it relates to trying to figure out the signs and symbols as you're trying to find your destination in a foreign country. So we went to France in, in around 2019, and uh, we first visited uh, one of the cemeteries there in France, the World War II Cemetery of Brittany, France, and that's the place where uh, my wife's uh, uncle, Merle Lester, um, was buried. And so uh, we went to Brittany, and so uh, we've got a photo that you should see if you're looking at this uh, YouTube on YouTube, and you can see us there in uh, in this cemetery, and that's uh, that handsome guy on the left, or at least the guy on the left, uh, that's me. <laughs> and then we've got Jan uh, next to me and our, uh, our two daughters, uh, Jamie and Jenna, which we uh, affectionately refer to as the Dodos. And so uh, that's us. And as we, after we left the, uh, the cemetery uh, over on the coast, um, we had to travel inland to a little village by the name of Poly-sur-Loire. And uh, that little village is the uh, place where my kinfolk came from. And uh, so I've done a fair amount of family history, and uh, we've got lots and lots of relatives and cousins that uh, come from this little village. So we wanted to go to this village. And so as we were traveling, we put in our Google Maps, um, and uh, it took us all over Kingdom Come. 
<laughs> we it, at some point we got off the freeway and in these back roads and you know I'm buzzing down take a left here take a light right here I'm beginning to wonder are we ever going to get there and in the middle of it all um, I remember <clears throat> as I was driving uh, there was a flashlight you know one of those uh, traffic uh, things that have the light and if you're going too fast it takes a picture of you <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I got to admit, I'm a little bit of a lead foot. And so I got my picture taken by this traffic control because I was going too fast. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting there wondering if uh, at some point in time the gendarmes are going to catch up with me. And uh, if I ever go back to uh, France, whether they'll flag my uh, <laughs> my passport because uh, I never did uh, get tracked down and uh, the gendarmes never caught up with me. But I am a fugitive in France um, at any rate. So we eventually made it to this uh, small little village and uh, you can see here a picture that we took the next day of uh, my brother and I standing under the uh, the sign leading into the town of uh, Pauly sur loire and uh, in the next uh, thing that you'll see if you're on YouTube you'll see a, a grave marker that we found we went to a, a, a graveyard that had a, a lot of our family members that were buried there and this happens to be a grave marker for the family Cassinet, Chabon and Maroy and all of those people are cousins where you can tell we're a close-knit family we're all in the same crypt <laughs> But at any rate, so after we're, you know, doing our activities, checking out graves and stuff like that, we discover that within five minutes of our Airbnb, there's a freeway that runs right by Pauly sur loire And I couldn't believe it because Google had us running all over the place and it didn't do us a bit of good because... It was dark outside. It's not like we could take, you know, a nice time and uh, see the scenery of the uh, the great countryside of France. But uh, so that's my experience. And uh, so the discovery of this freeway five minutes from the Airbnb, if you're feeling concerns over the signs and symbols leading you back to the celestial kingdom, I can feel your pain because I know what it's like to experience the being misguided by Google. Google Maps trying to find the the little village of Pauly sur Loire but uh, at any rate so knowing that I feel your pain uh, you should feel some uh, sense of relief because I'm going to be your tour guide I've had the experience <laughs> so I'll be your cartographer on our little excursion as we go through the book of Revelation talking about the signs and the symbols and the uh, the, the milestone markers that will eventually lead you back to uh, the celestial kingdom. So at any rate, as we go on and look at the uh, next part of uh, Revelation 1.1, it talks about that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then there's the phrase which says, of things which must shortly come to pass. Now this phrase causes a lot of people difficulties in understanding what is being said here. Now let me just preface this by saying what John is referring to here, these are the words of the Savior, but what John has written is the things which must shortly come to pass are those things which will occur after the revelation is given in 96 AD. And so if you go back to my podcast from October 8th, that's podcast number two, I did a podcast on the date and canonization of the book of Revelation. 
And so if you're wondering where did you come up with 96 AD and where do you come up with things which must surely come to pass, you'll get more information in that particular podcast. So that's one of those foundational podcasts that are part of your uh, AP book or revelation curriculum that if you go back and take a look at it, that'll kind of give you some insights as to how we arrive at the conclusion that the revelation was given in 96 AD and that the things which must shortly come to pass relate to things that started shortly after that date, but then continued for a very long time. I mean, we can't be talking about the book of Revelation being a roadmap that's going to get you to a condition of exaltation and the second coming and the celestialization of the earth and everything and then assume that everything is talked about in 96 AD and comes to fruition at that time. It just, it really makes no sense. But there are those who think that essentially the um, the entire book of Revelation deals with things that uh, were to occur, both finish and start. Um, back in 96 AD time frame. Others think that the Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and that uh, much of the Revelation therefore deals with the uh, catastrophes uh, that occurred with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and, and, and that's obviously not the case either. So what we have here in the book of Revelation is essentially the unveiling of Jesus Christ with most of the content of the book relating to what happened shortly after 96 AD and then continuing through the celestialization of the earth after the millennium. And among the, the things that shortly came to pass and that continued for a long duration was the great apostasy. So we're talking about a period of time in 100 AD when we had seven churches that uh, were suffering from great persecutions and tribulations, trials that were destroying, in many cases, the faith, the faith of the saints and causing them to, uh, to fall away from the truths of the gospel, as Paul had predicted in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, where he said that there would be this falling away. And then it continued for a thousand years or more. And so these, when we talk about the things which must shortly come to pass, we're basically talking about things whose beginnings shortly came to pass and then continued for a long period of time. Now notice also that the word must is emphatic. This verse says things which must shortly come to pass. That emphasis means that these things that happen hereafter are absolutely going to be fulfilled. It's a confirmation that what is predicted in the book of Revelation will be fulfilled without any equivocation. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> Whatever bank you bank at, take that to the bank. And so um, you have that assurance, even in the first verse, that what you're about to hear and what John is going to record um, is the truths of infallible things that are certainly going to come to pass. Now it also says that these things were signified by his angel unto his servant John and signified in its simplest terms simply means it was revealed. It was revealed by an angel to the apostle John and uh, in many instances this quote-unquote angel is the Savior himself who is uh, giving to John the information about uh, his second coming and so on and so forth. So the signified also refers to the various signs and symbols that John is receiving 
as he goes through his visions in the book of Revelation. Some say that they think this angel, by signifying the revelation, gave to John some type of specific sign or token that validated the truth of the revelation. And that may or may not have validity to it. What I see it in terms of the signs and tokens being signified is more in the nature of the historical hindsight that we now have which shows a fulfillment of many of the validating signs, tokens, and symbols that John describes in the book of Revelation. So, for example, we have a a long history of the uh, apostasy, the um, the Reformation, the the Renaissance, the uh, the restoration of the gospel. All of these things are talked about and predicted in the Book of Revelation. And now here we are in the year 2023, and we have the benefit of looking back and saying, "Wow, John got it right. He really did." And so there you have the signification by virtue of the history, the history that we now know that validates what John's saying. So last week in my podcast number nine, where I talked about the 70 weeks prophecy, for example, I noted how Daniel, more than 500 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, made a prophecy where he was able to predict with dead-on accuracy the exact year when Christ would be crucified. And today we have the benefit of historical hindsight of knowing just how accurate that prediction was. And so because we have that certainty that his predictions were correct in regard to the first coming and crucifixion of the Savior, we can have confidence in what is left of the fulfillment of his prophecy that still lies in the future. And so it is also with the book of Revelation that much of what John prophesied and predicted has come about and we'll talk about those things later on, but because they have come about with such certainty, it is signified to us by the passage of time that the signs and tokens and symbols have been validated, and therefore we can have confidence going forward as we come into the seventh seal and the second coming that John spoke the truth as signified by the angel. And uh, so we get into this issue of what angel are we even talking about when we talk about it was signified by the angel because throughout the book of Revelation we have various personalities and persons that are quote-unquote angels, Christ being among them and that's appropriate because he's the chief executive of the Father and is the Word of God. He speaks with divine investiture of authority as though he was the Father in many circumstances and so A lot of the revelation that John receives, even though it's identified as an angel, as kind of this generic figure, you have to understand that uh, quite often it is the, uh, the Savior himself that is speaking to John and appearing to John. And there are other occasions when they're they're just angels. <laughs> uh, and John, twice in the book of Revelation, mistook the angels uh, for the Savior because they spoke with such words to suggest that it was the Savior and could be none other than the Savior who must have been speaking to him. And they had such a glory about them that John fell down at their feet and began to worship them. And then the angels, who are not the Savior, said, hey, 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 what you doing? <laughs> 
I'm not the Savior. Uh, I'm your fellow servant, so uh, stand up, stand up. <laughs> so we have those kinds of situations that uh, we will run into. So that's a little bit about the uh, first verse by way of introduction. I want to quickly pass through Revelation 1-2 that, with, that begins with John bearing record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things he saw. In other words, John bear record of Jesus Christ as the word of God. He bear record of the testimony he had of Jesus Christ. And it's also when it talks about the testimony of Jesus Christ, what we're here saying or what John is saying is essentially he's repeating precisely the testimony that Christ gave of himself through the signs, symbols, and tokens, everything contained in the book of Revelation is a testimony of the truthfulness of the book and of what is being said about Jesus Christ and having been received from Jesus Christ. And so John is basically, uh, as a scrivener, he is a faithful witness of the things in Revelation which were made known to him exactly by the Savior. So that's kind of a quickie on uh, on Revelation 1-2. Let's go on to Revelation 1-3 where it says that uh, blessed is he. So this is a promise that's coming to you as long as you do what this verse tells you to do. It says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit, beginning first with the word blessed. Uh, this is the first of seven Beatitudes that you'll find in the book of Revelation, which are essentially statements of blessedness. You find the same series of uh, promised blessings in the Beatitudes found in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So, blessed are the meek, blessed are so-and-so. And so this is the first of seven that you find in the book of Revelation. And the first thing that you have to do in order to get the blessing is you have to read the Revelation. Now, <laughs> that's a pretty low bar, all right? So as long as you're just reading it, uh, you will find yourself in a state of blessedness. And that's kind of like my seminary students, because one of the things that they had to do to get credit um, and to get points is they had to read whatever particular volume of scripture was that we happened to be studying that year. But that's a, it's a pretty low bar. And the good news is, if you like to listen to uh, scriptures on audio tapes, the second statement of blessedness talks about those who hear the words of the prophecy will also be blessed. And so uh, I think you could probably even count this podcast <laughs> and you get blessings uh, for uh, for listening to audio tapes and to listening to podcasts. So, uh, I mean, no quizzes, no midterms. Uh, it's basically another great day in paradise is what we're talking about here. And so uh, one thing of note, um, anciently in the Jewish synagogues, they were they practiced the art of uh, reading the scriptures, but one of the requirements that they had to have before you could read the scriptures in the synagogue was there had to be at least 10 people present to make up the congregation. And so uh, since not everybody uh, had, of course, copies of the scripture the way that we have them today, uh, that made it a little tough for your individual scripture study if you couldn't get 10 people together and go down to the synagogue to read the scripture. So at any rate, but that's the, that's the statement of blessedness is that if you hear the words of the prophecy, 
then uh, then you get blessings. So so that's good. Uh, but now it starts to get a little bit uh, a little bit tougher because the third statement of prophecy about the blessings is that you must also keep the things that are written therein. Now notice here in between all of these things it says, "Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep those things which are written." So. Uh, you know, I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but not only do you have to hear, uh, not only do you have to read, you actually have to be obedient to the things that uh, that you listen to and that you hear. And uh, that's when the blessings really come, is when you actually obey the uh, saying. So, not as uh, pretty a sight as you might have hoped for, uh, because uh, it puts the burden on us to be obedient to the things which are written in the in the uh, book of Revelation. Now, I also have one more requirement to add that you find in the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1.3. And his translation states, Blessed are they who read, and they who hear, and this is where he adds, and understand the words of this prophecy, and then it continues and keep those things. So we have a fourth requirement added by the Joseph Smith translation, which uh, means that you have to read, you have to hear, you have to understand, and then you have to obey. And it's, it's really kind of self-obvious, isn't it, that if you're going to keep the sayings and the things which are written in the book of Revelation, you also have to understand them. I mean, if you don't have an understanding, uh, I think it's basic doctrine that those who lack an understanding aren't going to be held accountable for the things that they can't understand. And so the mere fact that Joseph Smith added this additional requirement for you to understand the words of this prophecy kind of puts a little bit of an onus on us to make sure that we do and that we spend the time to understand what has been written. Now, at the same time that Joseph Smith is adding in his translation that we have to understand the words of the prophecy, we also have attributed to him the statement that he made where he said, the book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. <laughs> I, you have to chuckle right now because you're struggling with that statement, and, and it's a struggle for a lot of people, but it's found in... Uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith at page 290 is well you, where you will find that particular quote made by the prophet. Um, but the two go hand in hand. Uh, there has to be a certain measure of plainness that people can understand because Joseph Smith then wrote it right into the revelation that you have to understand the words of the prophecy. So if you're skeptical about what's written in the uh, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, thinking, well, maybe the, maybe the prophet was just having a bad day or something <laughs> when he said that, well, he put it in the, in the revelation itself. And so uh, we have a responsibility to read, hear, understand, and heed the things which have been written, and all of those things are uh, written in the conjunctive, meaning they're all added or joined together with the word and. So all of them are required for you to reach that state of blessedness that is promised in this particular verse. And, and now what started out as kind of a rosy situation and a low bar has now gotten to the point that it probably feels almost uh, insurmountable and you're... <laughs> 
<laughs> you might be feeling a little bit of guilt like uh, the uh, T-Rex on uh, Toy Story. He was a character with a lot of anxiety and uh, uh, the thing that was making him feel guilty was he, of course, he accused Woody of trying to kill Buzz Lightyear and he confronted uh, Woody about uh, what he was trying to do to Buzz and then later when uh, Bo Peep saw that Woody was with Buzz in the remote-controlled car, then all of a sudden he's saying, oh, no, I feel guilty. <laughs> and that's where we're at in our studies so far. So far we're just scratching the surface, and all we know is we're supposed to understand all this stuff, and we don't, and now we feel guilty. So uh, fear not, we're going to get through it, and uh, we'll continue to come to that point of uh, our studies and understanding where you too, like the prophet, can say that the book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. And I have to tell you in all candor and seriousness, uh, I've been studying it for 14 years, and uh, I agree with the prophet. Uh, he was speaking as a prophet in uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, and, and you can reach that uh, state as well, I'm very, very confident. Now, the other thing in this particular verse, which, which talks about this state of blessedness, he also uses the words, for the time is at hand. <clears throat> now that's kind of an interesting statement and it adds a little bit of urgency to uh, this notion that you need to read, hear, understand, obey. Why? Because the time is at hand. And the time referred to here is specific to the days preceding the coming of uh, Jesus Christ. And this is expressed in the words, I come quickly. Uh, that uh, are used about four separate times in the book of Revelation. And so you'll know uh, from looking at the uh, fifth podcast on numerology that uh, the number four is reflective of the world number. There's That number means something. The fact that he says, I come quickly four times has meaning in the number of times that it is said in the book of Revelation. And you just have to go back to podcast number five on numerology and you can get a, a greater sense of appreciation for what that word means. But it, it does have a dual meaning uh, when it says I come quickly because it means that Christ can come quickly to faithful and obedient saints during their lifetimes. He can come quickly to the faithful and obedient when they die. Um, also, Christ's judgments tend to come swiftly in life and in death. So in all of these senses, um, the Savior can come quickly, and for them, you know, the saints that lived anciently, for them the time was at hand as they suffered and died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus Christ, and Christ would then come quickly to them in their infirmities and in their death. And for us living in the latter days, the time is at hand for Christ's second coming when we will have a fulfillment of everything that has been written in the book of Revelation. And so it behooves us living now to both read, hear, obey, and understand the things which are being said. Because remember, we're using all of these things as signs and milepost markers and signs that will take us on our path to exaltation. And so since the second coming is uh, fast approaching, it behooves us to make sure that we're ready. Now, one of the interesting kind of things about this verse in the words, uh, the time is at hand, is Moroni used those identical words in Ether chapter 4, verse 16, 
where he was speaking of the last days, that is, our day after the restoration of the gospel. Now, you ask yourself, before I read this verse from Ether 4.16, you have to ask yourself, what is Moroni, who's living around probably 428 D, he's the last living prophet on the American continent, um, he's, you know, running around avoiding the Lamanite death squads, and he's in hiding, and he's getting ready to translate um, and record and condense and abridge the uh, record of the Jaredites, and here he is writing about our day, and he's talking about John the Revelator and the book of Revelation, and so this is what Moroni says in Ether 4.16, quote, and then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. Remember, when ye see these things, ye shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. Now isn't that interesting that here we have Moroni talking about the last days, our day. He's quoting John and talking about the words of John in the book of Revelation and saying, the time is at hand. And that's the exact same phrase that John himself used when he wrote this verse in uh, Revelation 1.3. And uh, so it applies, and I, I emphasize that point because Moroni was specifically speaking about our day, the time after the restoration of the gospel, and that ties in John's words about the time being at hand for us as well. And that's why if we're going to be blessed, we got to read, hear, understand, and obey the words in the book of Revelation. To me, it kind of places the book of Revelation in a kind of a, we put it on a pedestal. It's it, it, a lot of people struggle with it. They don't see why we should be spending our time reading all of these things. And yet Moroni found it to be important enough that he was discussing it as one of the last things he did before he passed away as the sole surviving prophet on the American continent. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> if it's good enough for Moroni, it's good enough for me too. And uh, hopefully for you as well. So one other last point that I just want to make <clears throat> with regard to the issue of time. You do have to understand that in apocalyptic literature, time tends to be not such a material part of the prophetic message. And so the idea that there is an urgency about hearing, reading, understanding, and obeying the words, that urgency or importance is going to exist regardless of whether we lived in the time of John and received this in 96 AD or whether we receive it now as we're approaching the uh, second coming. It's, it's simply a sober reminder to us of how much closer we are to the Christ's second coming at this time and the need for us to be prepared for it. So that's uh, kind of uh, everything I wanted to talk about is with regard to uh, Revelation chapter 1-3. Now we come to <clears throat> verses 4 through 6 in Revelation 1, and I'm not going to spend any time talking about these verses um, because 
you will find the uh, John's salutation to the seven churches in these particular verses. And I think I kind of talked about the, those a little bit in my two podcasts, that uh, number six and number seven, that talk about the uh, seven churches in the uh, book of Revelation. So keep in mind, if you go back and you listen to these or you have listened to them already, um, these podcasts, even though two of them were devoted to uh, the seven churches, they really kind of covered the history of the cities of those seven churches and some of the geopolitical circumstances that existed. So even those podcasts, even though there's a great deal of information in them, they're still kind of at the 30,000 foot level as far as understanding the content in the book of Revelation. I didn't discuss in any detail at all um, what was going on with the saints themselves. And uh, I'm going to just give you a, a kind of a quick overview of what was going on with the churches in this podcast. But again, it, we're going to have to stay at that 30,000 foot level, and that's the, uh, the, the same is true of a number of other verses. Let me spend just a moment of time, though, talking about some of the content in Revelation 1-7, because I think this is important for you to understand as you continue your studies, leading to, ultimately, uh, your understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, Revelation 1-7 states, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Now, that's obviously a declaration about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and here's where we kind of get our first introduction to that second coming. We're only seven verses into this thing, and already we're talking about the uh, second coming and what it's going to be like. And so that's why I continue to try and emphasize the idea that this is an unveiling of uh, Jesus Christ. And the second coming is certainly a major theme of the revelation. Now, after we get this kind of this brief introduction, and this is pretty typical of John, he'll give you kind of a brief introduction to some topic, and then he's going to follow it with a crescendo of detail that you find in the remaining visions that then come after this. So, but let's focus for just a, a moment of time on this notion <clears throat> that Christ cometh with clouds. The clouds themselves symbolize his presence. They're the Shekinah uh, of the Old Testament, where you saw this cloud that uh, accompanied the uh, wandering Israelites for their 40 years, and that cloud symbolized uh, the presence of Jehovah among them. And so it was essentially something to uh, be a shadow to, um, to hide his glory from them because they weren't worthy to be in his presence. So he's with them, but he's kind of hidden behind the cloud in what is called the Shekinah. Um, but it also represents, as part of the second coming, this concept that he will be accompanied by a number of faithful saints uh, who will be dressed in white. And so these, the whiteness that you're envisioning of clouds is uh, the same kind of imagery that will accompany those that are worthy to be with him at the time of his second coming. But <clears throat> the particular reference to the clouds that we're talking about here also are reflected in the glory that is displayed when Christ comes to the Mount of Olives and appears to a Jewish remnant that survives the seventh seal to the point of Christ's second coming. And you'll recall at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 
it uh, Jesus had been with his disciples and the twelve for about forty days in his post resurrection ministry, and then when he was ascending on the day on the day of ascension after spending these 40 days with him he was taken up in a cloud of glory and uh, two angels that were there talking to the disciples and referring to them as ye men of galilee why stand ye gazing there into heaven and he, they basically tell the disciples the same jesus who you have seen ascend in this glorious manner will descend again at the time of his second coming in a similar way that is on the mount of olives in a cloud of glory so when we think of this uh, concept of the the clouds here it has specific reference to uh, the savior's second coming on the mount of olives and so there's that kind of a connection but the thing that i i wanted to kind of emphasize to you and that you have to understand about the book of revelation is the the second coming is not so much as simply an event as much as it is a process. The second coming is actually a series of appearances that Christ will make at the time of his second advent. And so there are some private things that go on, private meetings that go on. There are those that are very public and are part of what we would say is the second coming. But I just want to have you make sure you understand this so that as you're going through this, you have to keep in mind the timing of when certain things uh, happen. And as I've mentioned in a prior podcast about the chronology uh, that John maintains going through the book of Revelation, it's very important that you, you kind of keep the time periods correct. So one of the private meetings, of course, that uh, will be in advance of the second coming is when the Savior appears to the saints that gather at Adam on Diamond, essentially for Christ's coronation as King of Kings before he then comes to rule personally on earth uh, throughout the millennium. John describes this particular gathering in Revelation 10. And again, it's shrouded in lots of symbolism, but uh, that is the uh, chapter that describes this private gathering at Adam on Diamond. And we know that that will occur three and a half years before the second coming. And how do we know that? Well, that's the information that I shared with you in the podcast that I did on November 26th. It's podcast number nine that deals with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. So if you haven't had a chance to, to listen to that one, and it's about a two and a half hour <laughs> podcast. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, that's where some of these things start to get tied together is by taking the prophecies of Daniel, Ezekiel, others like Jeremiah, um, and you put them together and then those little puzzle pieces begin to make a clean picture for you. And so that's the private gathering. Now, the three, the, the second coming itself consists of three formal appearances by the Savior to the earth. The first of these appearances will occur at the Temple of Zion in Independence. And uh, there are a number of scriptures that talk about the suddenness of Christ's visit to uh, his temple in the latter days. And the Kirtland Temple, there was a sudden appearance of the Savior to, uh, to the Kirtland Temple, and, and that certainly is potentially a partial fulfillment of those uh, prophecies that talk about the sudden appearance of the Savior at his temple. But the, the real fulfillment of that particular prophecy will occur 
at the uh, temple that will be built in uh, Independence. And my suspicion is um, that uh, it's going to occur much like it did with the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. It, that visit to his temple and the sudden appearance is going to be at the time <clears throat> that this temple in Missouri is dedicated. And so that's the first appearance of the Savior that makes up the series of appearances as part of the Second Coming. The second appearance of the Savior will be when he comes to the Mount of Olives, as I've talked about a little bit before. This particular visit will follow the resurrection of the two witnesses who will minister in Jerusalem for three and a half years. Their dead bodies lie in the streets unburied, and then after three and a half days, they're resurrected. And so once their resurrection is complete, um, then not too long after that, um, the Savior will then make his appearance on the Mount of Olives. And all of that is recorded in Revelation 11 as far as the two witnesses are concerned. Revelation 11 does not contain the information of the uh, second coming itself. Um, then the third appearance of the Savior that makes up his quote-unquote second coming is his appearance to all the world. And that John has recorded for us in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. So you're going to find a, a number of commentators, scholars that are talking about these various uh, visions that talk about Christ's second coming. And they all kind of treat them like they're just kind of this mishmash and they're out of order and out of sequence and everything. And they fail to recognize that what's really happening is, is there are a series of visitations and each of them follow a strict chronology that John records in chronological fashion in the book of Revelation. So you keep those three kind of straight in your mind. That's going to be helpful to you as you uh, study the book of Revelation and uh, we'll get you through the point. All right, the, uh, moving on to uh, Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Um, this is John's charge to write to the seven churches, which I described in the two podcasts that I described to you previously. And then we come to Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, and it says this, I turned to see the voice that spake to me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So up to this point, the Savior has been talking to John, and he has only heard the Savior's voice, but has not heard him or has not seen him. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of symbolism in the idea that the voice, that the voice spake with me and he had to turn around to see the voice from behind him. Um, and I'm going to get into that later on when we kind of do a verse-by-verse -verse analysis because we kind of can't get too bogged down here. Uh, but essentially, when he hears the voice of the Savior behind him and turns to look. The thing that he sees is seven golden candlesticks instead. Now he does see the Son of Man in, in the midst, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he sees these seven golden candlesticks, and the candlesticks is a little bit of a misnomer because when we think of a candlestick, we think of this piece of wax that has a wick in the middle of it, and when you light it up, and the wick begins to burn, eventually the, the, the wax melts and you end up with a, a blob of wax on your birthday cake if you don't blow out the candles in time, right? So that's not what we're talking about. These are lamp stands that uh, support a little bowl at the top of the lamp 
and uh, in the bowl you'd have some olive oil and then a little piece of cloth that would serve as the wick and so as the candles would burn the lamp stands or the candlesticks as described here wouldn't burn down um, and so here we'll uh, throw up an image here of what essentially John is seeing as it relates to when he turned and saw these seven golden candlesticks i.e. lampstands with the Son of Man in the midst of them and we're told that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia and it's kind of interesting because in this uh, photo we've also shown an image of the menorah and it's kind of interesting that when John describes the seven candlesticks as being the uh, the seven churches in Asia <clears throat> you have to distinguish that from the imagery of the menorah which was a uh, candelabra or candlestick quote-unquote it's a lampstand again that has seven branches on it but they all form uh, out of a single stem. So the big difference between what John is seeing here in verse 12 is all of the lampstands are independent from one, of the, one another. They don't have a common branch that they come out of as was the case with the menorah. Now the menorah is of course a long-standing piece of furniture that goes all the way back to the uh, days of Moses and the tabernacle um, the symbolism is the same. The, the idea is, is that the menorah represents a people who are at one with Jehovah and they hold up his light. And so that's why you have this, this idea of a single stem because they're holding up the light just as the seven candlesticks are holding up the light of Christ. Um, but yet they all remain separate. And so you ask yourself the question, why the different imagery? What does the imagery mean when you have seven separate candlesticks or lampstands that do not join and meet with a single stem as was the case with the menorah. And the reason is, is because as of 96 AD, there was no central church leadership. All of the 12 apostles had been killed except for John. And so you did, it's not like you had a central church that was the, uh, the light of the world. Um, so to speak, and each of them are kind of off doing their own separate thing because they were lacking in unity that uh, was represented by the single stem of the menorah. So the other thing that we can say of some note concerning these lampstands is they're, they're made of gold. Uh, and gold, of course, is a symbol of purity. Um, it's a symbol of great worth. And so even though these seven candlesticks are kind of off and as we describe these churches here in a minute you can see that they've got problems among them but yet <clears throat> Christ still recognizes them in the vision that he is giving to John that even in their kind of uh, segregated condition they are still of great worth to him now keep in mind also that if these candlesticks were only gold in their appearance, then that would be a symbol of hypocrisy or even evil. But because um, the, these are real gold lampstands, um, even though there is great wickedness in, in five of the seven churches, they are still of great value to the Savior. And uh, so that's the kind of symbolism that we get in connection with the uh, seven candlesticks. So the uh, 
Seven churches are represented as these lampstands that then hold up or bear the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel. You have something similar that happens at the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles in uh, John chapter 8. One of the uh, things that was done at the time of the, uh, on the last day of that particular feast was the, uh, the lighting of the four candelabra at the Temple of Herod. And when I talk about these candelabra, the, these weren't just like a little lampstand. I mean, these were, you know, probably 60, 70 feet in the air. And in order to light these huge candelabra, you know, they had to have somebody shinny up that <laughs> that big, tall uh, the candle lampstand and light those big lights. And it was in this backdrop that Jesus then made the declaration in John chapter 8 saying, I'm the light of the world, and that was uh, typical of his manner of teaching where he would take the everyday objects around him and uh, use them as an analogy and to teach uh, a, an important principle of the gospel. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Revelation chapter 12. I want to spend a little time talking about the imagery some more with these seven candlesticks that we find in uh, verse 13. So this verse says, quote, And in the midst of the seven candles... One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. In this verse we learn that in the midst of the seven candlesticks, John saw one like unto the Son of Man. This is a name title for Jesus Christ, and it's found in all four standard works. It essentially refers to the Son of the Man of holiness, meaning God the Father. And so Jesus Christ as his firstborn and as his only begotten Son of God the Father who is Elohim. And so Christ comes as the Son of Man uh, and is seen by John in this midst of the candlesticks. The Son of Man title is also used in connection with Jesus Christ's coming to the gathering at Adam on Diamond and it is frequently a uh, name that is used in connection with the judgments that will accompany the second coming. So you find the, the sign of the Son of Man also being given in Revelation chapter 15. And so in this context, what we're seeing is the Savior in the midst of the seven lampstands representing that he exists in the midst of his church and as the light of all things. Now, keep in mind that uh, <clears throat> these seven churches were not in the greatest of conditions, but it reaffirms the fact that uh, Christ would come quickly that he talks about four times in the book of Revelation. And this is literally true because in this imagery, we're actually seeing him in the midst of the seven churches uh, and they were of great value to him in that regard. And so the other thing that is noteworthy is Christ was clothed with a garment that identifies him as both a king and a priest. And so the, he essentially he's wearing symbolically the garments of the, the holy priesthood and uh, the gold that he's wearing symbolizes purity and divinity. And so the golden girdle or sash represents the divinity of the wearer. And so these garments that are being depicted here in this imagery resemble the clothing that were worn by every high priest in Israel throughout the Mosaic area. The high priest himself 
where the girdle at his chest. And so if you look carefully at the image that I'd put up a moment ago, the golden girdle is shown uh, a tithe or, or tethered uh, about his chest. And uh, so that was the way that the high priest would wear it. Those who were the active temple laborers or the attendants, what I call the worker bees in the temple, would have their sash um, secured at their waist so that they would, it's kind of the old gird up your loins kind of statement where they would tie their robes at the waist so that they wouldn't trip of them as they were engaged in their uh, temple activities. The high priest in the Mosaic era, of course, typified Jesus Christ, who's the great high priest of all the earth. And this was especially true on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and made an atonement for the people in the similitude of Christ's atonement. And so this is the, the kind of the imagery associated with the, uh, the vision of seeing Christ as the Son of Man in the midst of these seven lampstands. You have the, the Son of Man who's like unto the great high priest based upon his dress and the blessings that come as a result of his involvement in the midst of the people. We're going to now go quickly over Revelation 1, 14 through 16. I'm going to basically tell you what it is to tell you. I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> but it has a lot of imagery that would take us a, quite a while to actually go through. But this verse says, his head, now describing what John saw about the Son of Man in the midst of the golden candlesticks, it says, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength." Close quote. So all of those signs and symbols, they all have meaning that it's going to take some time to, uh, to flesh that out when, uh, when we go through these again and kind of do a verse-by-verse -verse analysis. Um, but all of these things describe the Savior, and when you kind of lump them all together and look at them collectively, really what it's essentially saying is we don't have a way to describe the glorious attributes of the Son of God who has been resurrected and gone on to his glory. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the message that you need to get out of. We, we'll break them down eventually, but Christ is someone you can't really describe because of uh, the glory. It's not like we can say, oh, he's about six foot to one, brown hair down to his shoulders. <laughs> You know, that just doesn't do justice to the person that he is. Moving on to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 17, it says, quote, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I like this verse. We should probably be discussing it later, but I like it too much, and I can't resist saying a few words about it because it's a very very touching moment um you, you probably don't feel that you just read it and it says okay um it's like so many other circumstances that we find where people have fainting spells in the scripture for example in the book of mormon in jacob chapter 7 you'll recall that there was an antichrist by the name of uh, sherem 
and uh, he was going about doing the things that uh, Antichrist do and got a lot of people to believe him until he uh, challenged Jacob to show him a sign and when Jacob said okay you asked for it you got it and as Sharon was lying then on his deathbed uh, he confessed to all the people it's kind of like it was at Antichrist Anonymous and said I'm an Antichrist <laughs> And all of the people, it says, they all keeled over when he recanted uh, the words that he had said uh, as an antichrist. And so that's an illustration. You also have people like uh, King Lamoni and his wife, the, their servants in Alma chapters 18, 19. Other prophets have had similar kinds of experience. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all have had these kind of what we what I would say are kind of fainting spells. But But what's being described here with John is pretty personal. Um, he sees the Savior standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Um, it says, I fell at his feet as dead. And I, I take that to mean something. It's literally as though he were dead. And uh, the significance of this is you have the Savior reaching his hand down and lifting this disciple whom he loved. And so there's this great uh, relationship between John and the Savior. And uh, so there's that closeness that adds to the meaning of this particular verse. And then, of course, you have the Savior who died himself and was resurrected and had within himself the power of life. You can catch the, the imagery immediately that this beloved disciple of his that maybe he hasn't seen in 60 years... Um, faints as though he were dead and the savior reaches down his right hands and and lifts him up um and uh i, I just find that really uh really touching and a, and a meaningful moment between this these two men who had such great uh, care and love one for another and so it's it's the same that we see in other instances in christ's mortal ministry when he healed the sick he raised the dead with the touch of his hand um, and for us the message is is that uh, Christ has the power to raise everyone whether it be a John or whether it be someone else who was suffering from some kind of infirmity Christ has the power to uh, lift us up and to uh, give us life once again and so I, I really like that verse a lot he also uh, in this verse uh, talks about the uh, fact that uh, you, you should fear not this was a statement that Christ repeatedly made to people of faith, and it's true for all people who are living righteous lives. These are our watchwords, and they're the very kinds of things that help us endure trials and uh, tribulations, that uh, if we're living our lives as we uh, should, um, we have no reason to, uh, to fear. And so if you think about that in the context of the second coming, we describe the second coming as a great and dreadful day. Well, it's great for the people who are prepared and who have lived their lives as they should, but it's a dreadful day for the people that haven't. So then we come to the uh, the last couple of verses in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. This is John's final charge from the Savior that he's to write the, uh, the, the vision 
to the uh, seven churches. And this is what ultimately results in the uh, letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. I'm going to spend just a, a very, very brief moment of time talking about the, uh, the conditions of the saints in the seven churches. Again, kind of our 30,000 foot uh, level. But as John is going through his description of these seven churches and the problems they were having, the, the good things that they were doing, um, you have to kind of ask yourself, um, what do I exhibit in my own life and what experiences am I having that are similar to the kinds of experience and spiritual condition of these seven churches? Because you have to recognize that the seven churches of Asia represent the universal church. Um, the ancient conditions foreshadow the conditions of the modern church. And uh, it's no exaggeration whatsoever to say that every single thing that you see happening in the ancient churches in one form or another, you will find in the modern church. And so I want to just kind of touch on these just enough to kind of give you a sense of that flavor because you shouldn't think as you read these particular chapters that this doesn't really have anything to do with me. This is just a bunch of old churches in Asia Minor that don't have meaning. What John is really doing and the reason these seven churches are included and the letters that were written to them was because the Savior is telling us I, these conditions are things that you will face again. History has a way of repeating itself as we all know. So we begin with the uh, the church at Ephesus. This was a church that got mixed reviews. So you've got essentially two churches that the Savior commended. They didn't have he didn't have anything bad to say about them. There are two churches that he didn't have anything good to say about them, and then there are the other three churches that got mixed reviews. And Ephesus was one of the mixed review churches that uh, essentially their biggest uh, shortcoming was they were a church that had left their first love. They had great devotion for the Savior probably in the days of Paul and when John was teaching among them. Uh, and they were devoted to the Savior, but it had tended to uh, grow cold. And so they had left their first love. And today, I think you can see how that occurs today in the church and as the love of many waxes cold increasingly um, we can see where we can ha we have something to learn from the saints at Ephesus if we just take the time to read it and, and kind of look within ourselves and ask am I suffering from any of this kind of uh, malady that was afflicting the Ephesian saints the second church was Smyrna. They got a good review, only commended. They were a church that was filled with a lot of tribulation, a lot of poverty, uh, a lot of suffering. And yet, even though they were going through some of the hardest times among all of the seven cities, uh, it says that uh, essentially they were doing pretty well. They had overcome despite tribulation. And what I like to say is they had overcome, perhaps aided by the tribulation. And uh, this is one of those things that uh, you, you hear how people go through tribulation, they, they survive it, and then they always go back and say, you know, I'm better for the experience. And such was the case with, uh, with Joseph Smith, you'll recall, in, in Liberty Jail, who uh, was suffering there for about six months. And in, at some point, finally, in the 122nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, he was kind of 
<laughs> you know, he'd had enough. Uh, and the, uh, the Savior was uh, talking about his affliction and says, All these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? And, and that's the truth of it, that afflictions tend to uh, be the, the thing that allows us to grow and develop. It is our crucible that purifies us. And with the, with the fires of uh, tribulation, we become purified. And that's, that's kind of the situation within uh, the city of Smyrna for these saints. And hopefully it is, is for us too, that we can kind of accept the tribulations we have in our lives and be like the saints in Smyrna. We then come to Pergamos. This was a, uh, a city that got uh, mixed reviews again. Uh, they had basically started living very worldly standards. Um, and so they didn't get a lot of uh, trials and persecutions because they tended to look so much like the world that uh, the Romans, the, the Jews kind of tended to leave them alone because they all looked pretty much the same. And, uh, you know, if we're not facing some kind of a trial or some type of persecution and if we're not set apart from the world then we're probably doing something wrong and I think we can learn something about that from the saints in Pergamos. The next city was uh, Thyatira. They got a bad review. The, the Lord had nothing good to say about them and one of the things that was highlighted was this uh, prophetess by the name of Jezebel who taught the people to uh, engage in uh, fornication and idolatry, much like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who was married to uh, King Ahab. And we'll, we'll get into all of those details more when I do a verse-by-verse -verse analysis. But essentially, you have to look and ask yourself once again, are there people like that in the church? Who lead others astray that's that's really what we're talking about here with Thyatira is because Jezebel according to uh, some uh, beliefs in some ways in which the uh, the book of Revelation is translated based upon the original Greek it appears that she may have been the wife of the bishop <laughs> and so she's leading these people astray and to uh, to do wickedness and uh, you know, you might stop at first blush and think, well, that seems like a little extreme. I don't think we have those problems. And uh, um, I think that they exist. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So I was at a sacrament meeting, and it wasn't a tremendously long time ago. Um, but the speaker got up, and uh, she'd been assigned a topic to speak on, and she he talked about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm really glad I have the opportunity to talk about this topic because I, I feel like the brethren, with a capital B, haven't really properly addressed this. And I thought, oh boy, you know, <laughs> I just kind of tuned out and, and with good reason because it, it only got worse from there. Um, but, uh, you know, you'll hear things from the pulpit. You're, you'll hear things talking to people in the halls and people taking uh, positions on certain things and uh, they aren't always consistent uh, with what the brethren are saying. And I was reminded of the talk given by Elder Renland in uh, April 2022 where he talks about the fact that people who 
think the brethren should be doing things differently, like they're in charge and they can uh, just do whatever they want and fail to recognize what's said in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants that uh, talks about the Lord's voice and that of his servants is the same. But you can't have an apostle or a prophet, seer, and revelator out kind of just doing whatever the society dictates that they should be doing or talking or the manner in which they uh, receive revelation. And so Rev Elder Renlund kind of addressed this in his talk. He said, quote, demanding revelation from God is both arrogant and unproductive. And I, I thought about that as I was thinking, listening to this person on the stand talking about what that person felt like the, the 12 apostles and the brethren should be doing. And it just turns out, coincidentally, that after that sacrament meeting talk, I was giving a priesthood lesson um, that same day. And the topic of my discussion was in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, well, it was the entire chapter of Daniel. But essentially, the, the chapter is devoted to uh, the power of Satan from the time of the Babylonian captivity all the way through the uh, end of time to the second coming. And Daniel talks about how in these last days, in the days in which we live, that Satan would have power to wear out the saints. Um, and uh, so we're going to see the saints who are bombarded uh, both from without the church and from within the church. And uh, sometimes, and I, what I said in this priesthood lesson, I said, you know, sometimes you're going to hear things over the pulpit that's just going to surprise you. I say, you know what, that doesn't really sound like true doctrine, or that, that does, that's not right. And I said, you're going to hear that, and you're going to hear it in the hallways, people taking positions and saying things, and Satan is wearing them down. And, uh, and after the lesson, I had a <clears throat> one of the brethren come up to me and say, you know, I really appreciate that, that lesson that you gave today um, because I, I felt a little conflicted. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he was talking about. And so that's why he was kind of blatant in what I, what I said in my priesthood lesson. Unfortunately, the, the speaker and none of the family members of the speaker were in the priesthood meeting, so I felt I had some latitude to say, yeah, sometimes you'll hear things over the pulpit that you just say, that's not right. <laughs> so at any rate, that's, that's the nature of Thyatira. Do those dangers exist today in, uh, in the church today? I, I think they do, and I think that's why the Lord uh, gave us that information in uh, the book of Revelation. We then go on to Sardis. Uh, they are a city and church that also got mixed reviews, um, they were essentially a people that were very prideful and they were living on the faith of their predecessors. And I think you see that today in the church as well. Some pride and, uh, you know, living on the legacy of our pioneer heritage. And what have we done lately to make ourselves pioneers is kind of the question we need to ask ourselves. And then in Philadelphia, this was another city that got a, a good review. No, no condemnation by the Lord. And he talked about the fact that they had little strength. And even though they were people that had little strength, and many were probably feeling overwhelmed, they didn't deny the Christ. And, and there's a lesson in there for us as well. 
finally we come to the seventh church which is uh, Laodicea they got a bad review this is the church everybody kind of remembers them because they're the ones that were neither hot nor cold and they were lukewarm and the savior said he was going to spew them out of his mouth and and it, it should be pretty self-obvious I think that uh, this is a condition that uh, afflicts uh, many in the church today and what we have to look is within ourselves and say you know uh, am I kind of lukewarm in my testimony? Am I doing things that uh, may suggest that I'm lukewarm rather than being uh, hot? And so it's a good time for us as you read these chapters to uh, kind of uh, do some introspection. I always relate these kind of things to <clears throat> the experience of the apostles on the night before the Savior was crucified. Um, when he announced that uh, one among them would betray him. And uh, the scriptures record that uh, instead of everyone pointing an insinuating finger at Judas, which was, he was the likely candidate, frankly, um, but uh, instead of pointing the accusatory finger at Judas and saying it, it must be Judas, each of them kind of in turn said, Lord, is it I? Um, it's a it's a good question. It has universal application as we look within ourselves introspectively and say, when these kind of problems occur, whether it be in Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, whatever it might be, we look within ourselves and say, do I have any of those attributes? Is there something in my life um, where I could be viewed as being a member of this kind of congregation, speaking individually, not necessarily even your ward, but in your individual lives, and you say, Lord, is it I? If you ask that question, then empower yourself by saying, it is I. I'm the one. Because then you're empowered. If you say, no, I'm not the one, it's Judas then suddenly you've lost the power to make a change in your life. So uh, read these chapters carefully um, because I think we can learn a lot about ourselves and how to overcome these uh, kinds of weaknesses in our life. So that's those my brief discussion of the churches, and that's all of I'm going to say about chapters 2 and 3. We now come to Revelation chapter 4. Remember, we have five chapters we're supposed to get through, and I'm only going to kind of give you an overview of chapter 4, partially because I already discussed chapter 5 in one of the uh, foundational podcasts that I've already given. But I want to touch on Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, um, because I think it's important for you to understand what is going on in this chapter because it becomes the foundation for a lot of things that are going to come after this. And so in Revelation 4.1, we start out and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. This is really where the, the vision of the future now begins, and it's uh, consistent with what we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, which talked about things which must shortly come to pass. You've got to read these two verses together. Verse 1, in Revelation 1, things which must shortly come to pass, and now in Revelation 4, 1, he's, get, he's ready to start tell, t telling us about 
the things which must be hereafter. Okay, but now the, the, the main focus that I want to look at is the idea that he's got this door is open and he sees into heaven. And so this is a new vision. It's now we've come up from these seven churches, earthly conditions, and he's now looking up in heaven. And this is not something that is symbolical or metaphorical. He's literally looking in heaven. All right, and so we what we need to do is define okay, what's heaven, because that's going to be a key to understanding a lot of what is going to come hereafter. Now, prophets and people tend to be imprecise in their language, um, and that's what makes it difficult because the word heaven can have multiple meanings. And you know, in my line of business as a lawyer, I didn't do a lot of transactional work like writing contracts and agreements, but I was involved in a fair number of lawsuits that were caused because transactional lawyers, when they wrote various contracts, agreements, uh, specifications for construction projects, because of the imprecise nature of the language that they used, it ends up in litigation. And sometimes their writing is so bad, the lawyers end up in litigation being sued because they wrote this very imprecise language. And so I, it reminds me of the uh, one of my first case studies that I had in law school back in my first contracts class in 1984. <clears throat> and the professor in the text that we were studying, it, there was this case by the name of Fregalament Importing Company versus BNS International Sales Corporation. And we're gonna, I'm going to flip up the, a little bit of the opinion that uh, was given in that particular case. This is from the United States District Court in the Southern District of New York in 1960. And the, the circuit judge is a guy by the name of Judge Friendly. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have a name like that? Um, but at any rate, he's a, he's a great judge. At the time of the, he wrote this opinion, he was the uh, trial court judge. He was eventually elevated to the uh, Second District Court of Appeal uh, for New York. <clears throat> but anyway, he's kind of a famous guy. But anyway, so the, the opinion starts out, and, and what you're seeing on the screen, if you're uh, looking at this on YouTube, is the first paragraph of this legal case that was published, um, the words of Judge Friendly, and it says, quote, the issue is, what is chicken? <laughs> so that's the entire issue in the case, is what, what's a chicken? <laughs> So let me start again. It says, the issue is, what is chicken? Plaintiff says, chicken means a young chicken, suitable for broiling and frying. Defendant says, chicken means any bird of that genus that meets contract specifications on weight and quality, including what it calls stewing chicken. And plaintiff pejoratively terms Foul. <laughs> Continuing, he says, dictionaries give both meanings, and to support its, plaintiff sends a number of volleys over the net. Defendant assays to return them and adds a few serves of its own. Close quote. <laughs> you know, you, you don't often get humor in uh, case opinions, but uh, it's, a, it's a great case uh, written by Judge Friendly, and the whole issue is, What's a chicken? And so in this contracts class that we were having, the professor decided to uh, debate this issue. And so he had one group of debaters at one table 
um, who were going to debate a certain position, and then he had another group that were sitting at another table. They were going to debate the other side of the chicken issue. And when he posed the question, okay, what is a chicken? This uh, one of the girls in the class reached under her chair and pulled out this rubber chicken <laughs> and plops it down on the desk and says, this is a chicken. <laughs> and you know, <coughs> the the professor, he, he didn't see the humor of the moment. The class was cracking up, but he didn't really see the humor of the moment. And uh, so we went on in our debate about what's a chicken. And so in the in the uh, light of the great chicken uh, controversy, we have to ask, what is heaven? Uh, it can mean a number of things. Sometimes it refers to the visible sky. Uh, it can also mean the celestial kingdom on earth or the final dwelling place of resurrected saints after the millennium. Paul describes heaven as the third heaven. And we know that there are three heavens or degrees of glory within the celestial kingdom. So even saying that heaven is the celestial kingdom, it's a little bit imprecise because uh, aren't there three of them? And we often forget that in our discussions and, and it happens repeatedly in the book of Revelation in terms of what John is referring to as heaven. Is it the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, which means exaltation? Is it mean a position of an unexalted person in the celestial kingdom? Uh, essentially, in addition to that, we have the conditions in celestial paradise. So when someone, a righteous person dies, we say, where do they go? They go to heaven. Well, until you're resurrected, you technically don't get to go to the celestial kingdom. So there must be something that we call celestial paradise for the place of righteous disembodied spirits that they get to go, which is also heaven. And I'm going to simply tell you right now that what John saw when the door was open for him to gaze into heaven in Revelation 4.1, what he was seeing was heaven, that is, celestial paradise. And if anybody tries to tell you any different, what you need to do is you need to cry foul. <laughs> okay. Um, and they will be. people. Pete, you're going to get people who are telling you, yeah, this is the celestial kingdom. And uh, I've even uh, seen, because of the nature of the, the discussions in Revelation 4, and it talks a lot about creation, I have seen uh, people uh, within the church who describe that this vision is something that occurred before the creation because it's basically talking about creation. And, and that's just not a correct view of what it is. And so... If you're wondering how we come conclude that this is celestial paradise, I'll add simply one more note, and that is it is not only celestial paradise, it is celestial paradise as it existed in 96 AD. Because this is John receiving the revelation. He has this vision. He's not looking way out into the future. He's looking at the conditions in celestial paradise as they existed at the time he gets the vision. Now, how do I know that? Well, podcast number four, the book of Revelation organization and structure addresses that issue. So I'm, I'm simply going to have to refer you. Take a look and read. Take a look at that if you haven't already looked at it already. The essence of it is that the book of Revelation is chronological. And so you have essentially a vision that starts at the time that John gets it. He sees celestial paradise. And from there, the vision will march forward in time in chronological fashion, which tells you 
this vision cannot be the celestial kingdom after the earth has died and is resurrected because we don't get to that until Revelation chapter 21. That's what John is talking about in Revelation 21. And so unless we're assuming that John is just all over the map and there is no order to the book of Revelation, which is a view some people take, then this has to be something that is paradise and it has to be occurring before the second coming and even during the time of, of uh, John's visions in 96 AD. Now, I'm going to cite a few scriptures from Revelation chapter 4 that will help you to see this. And then as you start reading this chapter, you will then understand the context in which some of the uh, revelation and visions are being shown. So we start out in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. And what the image that we are seeing is God the Father seated on the throne. Now we know that because of the nature of this imagery, this cannot be a vision of something that is happening in the celestial kingdom sometime after the second coming. And the reason is, is because after the second coming, Christ will be seated on his, the throne with the Father. That's what's recorded in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. So if the vision in chapter 4 was of the celestial kingdom, Christ would be on the throne with the Father, but he's not. And the imagery on that is very clear. So ergo, you can't have this be associated with a vision after the second coming, after the, uh, the end of the earth and its uh, celestialization. Then consider also Revelation 4, verse 4. This verse talks about these 24 elders who are around the throne and represent the faithful saints from the seven churches. Now, when Joseph Smith was asked what the meaning is for these 24 elders, he got an answer in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verse 5, that describes the fact that John was seeing the spirits of righteous saints from the seven churches in, quote, the paradise of God. And so you have the 77th section of the Doctrine and Covenant specifically talking about John's vision of these faithful spirits and they are in the paradise of God, meaning they're not in the celestial kingdom yet. They're spirits, they're disembodied, they haven't resurrected yet, therefore they can't be in the celestial kingdom. That's why it refers specifically to the fact that John is seeing the paradise of God, meaning celestial paradise. This is the spirit world of righteous saints. And so what John is seeing is essentially the spirits of righteous martyrs from the seven churches that were there as of the time the vision had already occurred, but you're going to continue to have martyrs for some period of time. They will then be joining this group in celestial paradise as righteous disembodied spirits. And all of these have to wait until the second coming to be resurrected because the resurrection from the time of Christ until the second coming is not continuous. There, there is a general resurrection, meaning the resurrection occurs at least for those who will be uh, resurrected in the morning of the first resurrection. They come forward in large groups with certain limited exceptions like Peter and uh, James and John the Baptist who had Moroni who had special missions to perform. Other than that, 
the resurrection is general it is as a group and so what the people that john is seeing here in celestial paradise they're gonna to have to wait until the second coming to be resurrection and since they weren't resurrected in revelation chapter 4 this necessarily indicates that the vision predates the second coming now the next verse that we can talk about is uh, the uh, revelation 4 and 4 as it relates to these 24 elders who are mentioned on 11 occasions in the book of revelation there's actually 12 times the first time they're mentioned is here in revelation 4 4. now in revelation 11:16 is one of the occasions when these 24 elders are mentioned again and this vision is at the time of the third woe right before the second coming and what this verse indicates revelation 11:16 it indicates that these 24 elders were still disembodied spirits in paradise just before the second coming as they were when john saw them chronologically speaking for the first time in revelation 4 as of 96 a.d so the the fact that they show up again as spirits in paradise is another indicia that uh, Revelation 4 is not talking about the celestial kingdom. And I know I'm harping on this a lot, but you're going to hear people tell you that Revelation 4 is the celestial kingdom. And I'm trying to persuade you um, to consider what John is actually saying carefully. He, he uses language that is not imprecise. And so you can understand it. Um, and uh, that's why I'm harping on it. Now, if you'll just indulge me a moment, I'm going to harp just a little longer and then we'll be done. So if you go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, it also says that John saw seven spirits of God. Now, the Joseph Smith translation is going to change this and say that the seven spirits of God actually refer to the seven servants or leaders of the seven churches. But the fact that there is a reference here to their spirits is again an indicia that John is not seeing resurrected people in the celestial kingdom as of 96 AD, and he calls them spirits. These seven spirits are also in the company of the 24 elders, all of whom are in the paradise of God, according to the language of the uh, fifth verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 77. Now, here's Revelation verse, uh, Revelation 4 verse 6 is one of the reasons why people have tended to say that this vision in Revelation 4 is the celestial kingdom because in verse 6 it says John saw a sea of glass like unto crystal before the throne. Now the sea of glass that I want to point out first of all that is an image that depicts the celestial paradise but it's also an image that describes the celestial kingdom and this is why people get confused about this because in the millennial condition or in the celestial conditions it's described in the 130th section of the doctrine and covenants as like a great urim and thummim and like a sea of glass and so it, it also is crystal like and so there, there shouldn't be any reason to be confused over it because the what the conditions in paradise foreshadow and are similar to they mirror the conditions in the celestial kingdom so there's no reason why we can't use the same kind of terms to describe both of them but what some people say is oh the sea of glass that sounds like the 130th section of the doctrine and covenants 
this is the celestial kingdom and that's just not the correct way to look at it they're just using the similar kinds of imagery and the point to be made here is when john saw the sea of glass like unto crystal in revelation 4 he indicated that that image was before the throne okay the throne of god now the fact that these two things are distinct that on the one hand you have the sea of glass like unto crystal on one hand and then on the other you have the throne of god and they don't mix one is before the other meaning they're not the same place the throne of god is not in the midst of the sea of glass which will be a condition that will exist in the celestial kingdom and so that's why you have to make this distinction and you got to pay attention to these details because the fact that you have the crystal before the throne of God and separate from the throne of God tells you what it means is essentially yes the presence of God is in the midst of these righteous saints in paradise but not his fullness his throne is still separate from and distinct from the conditions in celestial paradise and so that's another thing last one I promise on Revelation 4 in Revelation 4 8 you have four beasts worshiping the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now, did you pick up on that? I'm going to say it again. And you think about why this would suggest. And again, this is a verse in Revelation 4. You tell me, <laughs> or you think to yourself, you think to yourself, why would this particular phrase indicate that we are not talking about something that comes after the second coming? after the death of the earth the resurrection of the earth and the celestialization of the earth ask yourself what these words tell you about the timing of this vision i'm saying i'm going to say them again john says the lord god almighty which was and is and is to come and i'll give you a little hint of course we're talking here about the the four beasts worshiping god um, and the savior and so uh, if the Savior, he was and is and is to come, the is to come is still future tense. And so if this were the second, if this were the end of the earth and the celestialization, Christ would have already come. There would be no is to come left in the future. And so that tells you that this verse is still talking about conditions which predate the second coming because as of the time of the vision, if Christ is still to come, that still lies in the future. So those are just some verses. If the, you pay close attention to the details, you'll figure out this is not the celestial kingdom. This is something else in terms of defining what heaven is. So that's what the chicken means in, that, in this context. Now finally, a few brief words on Revelation chapter 5. We have the vision of Christ the Lamb and the Redeemer in heaven. And so Revelation 5 is a continuation of the vision of celestial paradise that begins in Revelation 4 without interruption. But the difference is in Revelation 4, the focus of the vision was on God the Father seated on his throne and the glory that is attributed to him as the creator of all things. Now the focus shifts in Revelation 5 away from the Father as the Creator 
and it shifts to the glory of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as the Redeemer. And so I've already done a podcast, number eight, um, which I did on November 19th, that talks about the book with seven seals and the fact that because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, he had the power to open the book with the seven seals and reveal and carry out the plan of salvation of the Father. And so that's what Revelation 5 is all about. I I simply refer you back to taking a look back to that earlier podcast, and we'll kind of leave it there for now. Um, We haven't gotten into the detail of the verses because we're still floating along at uh, 30,000 feet. So next week uh, is another uh, very uh, packed week. Uh, We're supposed to be covering Revelation uh, 6 uh, through 11. That's six chapters if anybody's keeping count. Um, these events are going to talk about events of the sixth and seventh seals of the book of Revelation. We got to talk about the big earthquake at the end of the sixth seal, the plagues of the seventh seal, physical Armageddon, the gathering at Adam on Diamond, the ministry of the two witnesses in Jerusalem, and the introduction to the uh, second coming. So that's that's a lot of content to uh, cover. And so since we'll still be cruising at about 30,000 feet, Uh, And there may be some turbulence and bumps along the road. You'll need to keep your uh, seatbelts fastened. And so uh, with that, uh, I want to thank Jenna Daly um, for uh, helping me out with uh, a lot of the technical stuff on this. And uh, I hope that you found this to be valuable to you. And as you read these first five chapters of the Revelation during uh, December 4 through 10, that some of these things will resonate and they'll have more meaning to you uh, having kind of had this introduction to them. And if you do find that they're helpful to you and meaningful, I hope you'll let other members of your uh, Come Follow Me uh, uh, groupies uh, that might join us uh, for this podcast and uh, others in the future. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being with you next week.